Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, Dr. Leslie Joe Frazier. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your new book, Desired States, Sex, Gender, and Political Culture in Chile, published by Rutgers University Press earlier this year in 2020. I'd like to introduce you to our listeners before discussing your new book. Our guest today is Dr. Leslie Joe Frazier, Associate Professor at Indiana University in American Studies and Gender Studies. I am Sarah Hines. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma in the Department of History, and I'm here today with my colleague, Jim Kane Carrasco, an associate professor of history here at the University of Oklahoma. Hello. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'd like to start off um, with a question about the origins of the book. Um, as anyone who's written a book knows, it's a journey. One of the things I love about your new book, uh, Dr. Frazier, is that you take us on that journey throughout the book in many ways, discussing your sources, research process, and thinking. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in Chile early on, and then about the origins of this book and the process of researching and writing it? Absolutely, Sarah, and it's so great to be here with you both. I uh, am originally from West Texas, and I went to school in the Midwest and have um, worked I worked for a few years in South Carolina, in the St. Louis area, and now in Indiana. And my research has um, really focused primarily on questions of political culture in the Americas and a little bit in Western Europe. And the story of how I got to Chile is um, not very, it's not a very elaborate story. I my first started out my first research experience in Mexico, working with my colleague, Deborah Cohen. And I was very well trained in Mexican history, but I thought I'd like to go further away. And so <laughs> Chile was the furthest I could go and still be in the Americas. So it's it's not a great reason, but it's a it's a reason. So I just sort of started exploring and I became involved. I became involved with people, with people involved in social movements around human rights and justice. And I started exploring Chilean history because I was looking for a place to think about problems of human rights and political culture and thinking about um, places with histories of state violence and histories of movements, uh, reivindicatory movements. And Chile certainly has that to offer for me. And uh, I, over time, as I became involved um, and developed friendships and close relationships with people there, it stuck. So my first book had to do with issues of memory and state violence, and I wanted to pick a place that had a long history of social movements, of labor movements, 
and concomitantly a history of, of state repression. And I really wanted to think about memory as something that is in a deeply historical way, as something that changes over time, so that the ways that moments of state violence and repression get taken up in subsequent events, as the subsequent events unfold, that those ways might actually change over time and not be consistent across a, a historical period. And so in many ways, this book is a continuation of that question in the sense that I'm thinking about desire in a very broad way in terms of affect, emotion, relationships, struggles, and the ways that those dynamics change from one historical conjuncture to another. And in that sense, it's very much a continuation of the 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 ideas I was developing in my first book. It certainly has a lot of material that I had already been collecting and thinking about over the course of the research for my first book. And a lot of uh, material I gathered over the subsequent years as events unfolded and stories played out in people's lives. On on that point, you you start out the the text with the discussion of the the artist whose work is on the cover, which is a, a beautiful cover, by the way. Uh, but you you say that you had first met uh, Patricia Ruiz when you when you went to Chile your first time thirty years uh, before that. How is the, do you, do you detect a kind of um, or to what degree can you tell us about the the way in which working as an historian or working as a scholar in Chile has changed over that over that time? So in addition to the types of changes that you're tracking within your work, how does the the, the process of your work itself? Uh, how has that changed in, in relation to working in Chile since you first began that work 30 years ago? Well, that's a very interesting question. I have to say some things are easier to write about and talk about. When I did my dissertation research and in the process of turning that research into a book, there were still a lot of hopes for the idea of regime transition in Chile. So I went to Chile first in 1990, which was the first June of 1990. So the civilian government had just taken over governance from the military right then. And so it was a time in which there was a lot of hope for what that process that they called the transition um, could do for to improve people's lives and to um, create conditions of possibility for justice. And I wasn't seeing that in my field work, in my work in, in um, especially the ethnographic field work with social movements at that time. So over the course of the 90s, I was in a very difficult position because people didn't want to hear that my concern that it was the same state, that Chile was still being governed under the constitution crafted by the military to make democratic governance nearly impossible, and that there was still human rights um, repression going on, that the legacies of the dictatorship were not being addressed adequately. That was just not something that people who care deeply about Chile really wanted to hear at that moment. 
and it wasn't so it wasn't really a very um, hospitable place to make those kinds of critiques. Over time, as each subsequent presidency declared the transition's over, Chile is now really, really democratic. Yeah. And then the next president would say, well, no, this time it's really, we're really going to take care of this. As that went on over the course of decades, then it's become uh, a different context in which to sort of see this unfolding over time. And so there's the conditions for that kind of historical question and analysis are much are are much more hospitable right right now than they were then. I'm not sure that's really the direction you were thinking about, but um, that's one one thing that strikes me about what's changed. Yeah, no, that's certainly one of the directions I was thinking about. Yeah, I think another piece of it, since you mentioned Patti and and my relationship with her, that of course people's lives change as they get older. And I get older mm-hmm. and we we live out different trajectories. And so that has brought a lot of nuance to how I understand these these histories and to the significance of of my work for people that I care about there. Uh, going off of that, may, may, a couple questions that are somewhat related um, is that one of the things that I find really uh, innovative about your work, both in your first book and in this one, um, is your both historical approach and your ethnographic approach. And I was wondering if you could talk about your training um, and disciplinary orientation and how that has uh, shaped your work um, in a way that bridges the past and the present. Um, and then uh, related to what you were saying about the cover and um and the artwork, um, if you could tell our listeners a bit about the book's broad topic and its overarching arguments, especially in relationship to desire and the state. Okay, sure. Um, let's see. What was the first question? <laughs> uh, it was about um, being someone who does both historical and yes. ethnographic work. Yeah, the kind of questions of, of methodology. Right. Um. I guess my training and then the the research question are are deeply connected. So I started out, I guess, college thinking I was going to be an English major, and I enjoyed my English classes. Um, but when I started taking classes in history and anthropology, once I realized that it was a that anthropology was a thing which I didn't know before going, going to college, then I, there was a kind of fit in the way I tended to look at the world and the ways that historians and anthropologists look at the world. And I was lucky enough to have, um, by happy accident, landed in, in um, a college where there was a lot of, a lot of converse, interdisciplinary conversation across history and anthropology. And as as you both know, as Latin Americanists, that conversation is really organic to Latin American studies. So a, a long, long trajectory of of interdisciplinary reading and conversation and work across those two fields. But I never lost my interest in cultural criticism. 
And that was something that was important in my first book in terms of, especially in terms of using poetry as a, as a historical source. And that piece of my work, I think, has become more pronounced over time. Not for nothing, I'm located in a gender studies department and an American studies department. And so I really like that kind of intellectual openness that comes from being at those kinds of intersections. I've never lost my sense of myself as a historian and an anthropologist, fundamentally, but I, I appreciate not being constrained by region, by time, by particular kinds of sources. And so I feel really free to follow follow my questions to the kinds of sources I need to understand them. So if I wanted to look at memory and if I want to look at desire, then then kinds of sources that are generally used by cultural critics, literature, film, poetry, novels, short stories, these are places that are laden with affect and are places that invite that kind of interpretation and culling for material, not culling, but um, gathering of material. So I think that my research questions have also pushed me into an even more interdisciplinary space because I needed those kinds of sources together with things like memoirs, government documents, newspapers, the kind of classic sources that historians rely on, and the kinds of sources that anthropologists often gather from participant observation and broad cultural readings of of archival sources. So those pieces needed to come together for me to be able to to tackle these kinds of questions. Shall I move to the the parameters of the book? Yeah, that would be great if you could talk about in um your relationship, the relationship between desire and the state and the, in the broader topic of the book. Okay, great. So I like to look at pretty big swaths of time, generally about a hundred years, because I'm really interested in like, like most historians, I'm interested in change over time and change in continuities and um, clashing frameworks from one point, one conjuncture, and how those impact later moments. That's something that's an abiding interest of mine. And so I wanted to look at the ways in which states uh, and state actors have to mobilize people, and they have to mobilize them around a, a range of affective dispositions and emotional uh, responses in order to mobilize and do politics. And similarly, social movements have to do that work too. So that politics, that kind of interactions of, of people requires emotional interactions and alliances and antagonisms. And I was really interested in finding out about those. I was interested in the relationship between moments in which those kind of manifested in explicit languages about sex and sexuality. So we think about like the 60s when there's a notion that you that sex and politics are deeply connected and that sexual liberation 
should be connected to political liberation. And moments like the beginning of the 20th century, when you had a lot of, again, activists saying free love is connected to um, justice for workers. I was interested in those moments when questions of sex and sexuality were explicitly part of politics in relation to moments where things may not have been talked about in those terms, but certainly certainly there's always lots of sex going on. And certainly there's a, there's a deep connection between sex and politics. And so looking across a big period of time helped me look across those moments to, especially in terms of thinking about the darker periods of very repressive regimes and where fascist movements carried the day in Chile. And so the book is kind of, uh, alternates between moments of a kind of political effervescence and questioning and moments of really deep, uh, deep repression that were also about mobilizing people around, around passions. If I can follow up, I'm sorry, sir. No, go ahead. If I could follow up on that a little bit, and and um, with regard to the question of why Chile, which you raise a, a few times in your in, in the text, um, that scholars have tended to see, and certainly economists, political scientists above all, have seen Chile as a kind of laboratory slash model uh, for other areas in the region, and part of that is that there's a there tends to be a conception that Chilean politics is extremely rational. That it's 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 hyper legalistic. Um, yes. you know, the, the sort of chant in the street now is, "What do we want? A new constitution? When do we want it? As soon as the plebiscite is finished." Uh, you know, rather, rather than the more immediate uh, type of chance that you see in a lot of other places. But yes, uh, it's so, a great point. <laughs> so, looking at this, um, looking at the question of affect as a as a mobilizing, uh, as a as a as a integral part of political mobilization. I'm curious in the case of Chile, how you, uh, how you've reconciled that or how you've worked that with the, a lot of times self-perception of a lot of Chileans that their politics is, uh, almost exclusively rational, that they don't fall for the kind of charismatic leaders. Uh, they're not easily duped by emotion, um, that their politics is essentially based on, uh, law and reason. I love that point, James. I may, I may uh, have to cite you, but I think it's, I think it's, I think that what you're, what you're, you're very aptly pointing to is uh, compounded by something I heard people say often, which is, um, we're the gray country. We're the country that was most influenced by the British, and we're not. We're not like those, you know, passionate Argentines or Brazilians or. That that there's a that there's a a kind of a national myth narrative which is also a bit dour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also the way in which certainly the events and movements in Chilean history belie that that account, and certainly the place that Chile has occupied internationally as a site of these kinds of experimentations and projects and struggles is one that's incredibly effectively charged. I mean, the fall um, of the popular unity government 
under Salvador Allende, which this is the 50th anniversary of the coming to power of the popular unity government. So it's a very special year in that respect. That was something that was felt by people all over the world. And I was so moved when I would talk to other scholars in the U.S. and in Europe about working on Chile. And they would, many of them would have, if they were older, they had memories to share of friendships with Chilean exiles, of having traveled to Chile. I was just in a conference, a communications conference last week. And there was somebody in the conference who had been in Chile just after the military dictatorship staged the coup in 1973. And this U.S. scholar had been there. So it was a site because of the importance of its particular proposition that you could have revolutionary transformation through um, electoral politics and the possibility that that offered people all around the world and that you could have a relatively autonomous government that didn't have to align with the superpowers of the U.S. or the Soviet Union in the Cold War, that possibility was electrifying and people went to Chile to see what was going on. And certainly after the coup, 10% of the Chilean population goes into exile and they go all over the world. And so there's a lot of interpersonal connections, very personal connections with this history. And those legacies um, have been very moving to me to, to see as I've worked in Chile now over the course of the last 30 years that I still am meeting people who say, oh, I was there, or I knew this person, or this mattered to me. You know, I was... I was in Calcutta when we heard the news of the coup and we were devastated. It's, it's, it is an interesting seeming contradiction that you point to. They had the, the kind of faith in institutional, the possibility of institutional structures and processes to, to try something different and make something better. And then the people's investment in that wasn't limited to just people inside Chile. It seems like the scholarship to some degree reflects more what Jim's saying and less the flip side of it, the underbelly that you're talking about. I wonder if you could talk about the ways that you've developed to look for those um, issues of gender, sex, sexuality, modes of desire, um, especially since not only is um, in politics, but in general in our lives, we're encouraged not to even think very deeply about those questions, let alone write and talk about them. So your question is, how do I how, bridge or what the historiography? Well, how have you developed ways of looking for and seeing these questions of of sex and sexuality and and desire and, and gender roles um, that aren't emphasized, that are often hidden, whether deliberately or because we're not encouraged to think about them or look for them? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I am helped by, by scholars who've been working in Chile 
before me and and concurrently. So we have some excellent scholarship like Heidi Tinsman's book on um, the kinds of contradictions in gender regimes and sexual practices in the decades leading up to the popular unity government. Um, Florencia Mallon's work on masculinity in Chile, again, focusing on the, the left and those sectors mobilized for institutional change. So I didn't, I certainly didn't invent this question, but I think the, um, maybe what's a little bit different about my approach is that whereas many scholars who've looked at questions of gender and sexuality tend to look at reproductive politics, thinking of Jadwiga Piper Mooney's wonderful work, or um, look at questions of like Margaret Power's work on right-wing women in Chile, which is just wonderful. I don't think there's a lot of work that kind of bridges those ways of thinking about gender and sexuality, that bridges um, a perspective that foregrounds women, that centers lesbians in particular. So a lot of queer scholarship ends up centering men. And so I think um, in that sense, a model for me has been Licia Fiomata, who wrote, wrote Queer Mother for the Nation about Gabriela Mistral. She's a, a cultural critic who looked at questions of uh, international relations and and literature and thinking about Mistral as a very complex figure. And I think my work really builds on those efforts to think about gender and um, queer scholarship in ways that can encompass masculinity that can encompass reproductive politics that can encompass what's happening in in terms of dissident sexualities and i really try to put those in the, in in a shared framework and i think that thinking about political culture allows me to bring those different kinds of experiences and perspectives into a shared framework in ways that maybe that's been harder previously. So the, the book begins in the northern frontier, um, an, an area of the country that tied Chile to global capitalism, and um, as we learn in the book, served as a, an especially brutal site of exploitation and repression. Can you talk about the place of the northern zone in Chile and in the broader region, and then tell us more specifically about the people and moments that you write about in the first two chapters? I'd love to. In some ways, this m might seem idiosyncratic and may seem mostly a product of the fact that I, I centered my first book on From the North, except that this region was really important to the development of national politics because it was an enclave economy where the wealth of the whole country was generated from mining, mining in the hands of, of foreign companies and foreign capital. And that wealth was the wealth that then um, became a, a factor in national politics. And so it's not for nothing that 
most of the contemporary 20th century and 21st century political parties have their origins in that region. So the organizers and um, and the party structure kind of gets going from from the north, not from the national capital. And that is a, a product of an enclave economy. Chile remained an enclave economy even after um, nitrate mining, which was mining to to pull out sodium nitrate for explosives and fertilizers, even after that industry fell apart with the first two world wars and the development of synthetic nitrate, Chile remained an enclave economy with the rise of telecommunications and the importance of copper because Chile turned out to have also a fantastic reservoir of copper. And certainly Chile's economy now is more diversified, but it remains export oriented. And in that sense, it, it remains kind of um, perhaps slightly more broadened enclave situation in which a lot of the wealth of the elite come from their international connections and their connections to international capital. So I think that is a reason in which a perspective that moves between the ostensible center of political power, the national capital, which by now has the concentration of the population, uh, like many Latin American countries, most people live in the, the capital region, the region of the metropolitan region of the capital, but not forgetting that this is very much connected to what's happening in the rest of the country. And so I think that moving across these spaces is about the story that I'm telling about how, how states and political s- systems kind of grow and change over time. Is this the direction you wanted to go? Yes, absolutely. And then if you could tell us uh, about the some of the people you talk about in the North and some of the surprising stories of, of the kind of work they're doing there in the early 20th century and into the mid 20th century. And, then yeah. as, and also about the darker side of that, of the role of the, that region um, in repression and um, on a national level. Absolutely. I got really involved in this particular moment a few months in 1913. <laughs> and I got completely um, I got completely entranced by these um, rivalries and adventures of really interesting people who were drawn to the north because of the boom, the mining boom, and people who were getting some organizing experience who were getting, or they were from elite families and had been kind of sent up there to keep out of trouble a little bit. But it turned out to be a really interesting place where all kinds of characters were vying for uh, their followings and for public space and a lot of idiosyncratic characters. And that was kind of the question that originally motivated the first chapter of the book was how is it that in a few months in 1913, you have public debate occupied by a Catholic bishop and a Spanish feminist. And their rivalry and their kind of vitriolic um, propaganda against each other comes to be the main story for that year and electrifies people in the region, but also the news of this was electrifying people all over the country. 
And so it was an in- interesting and curious question for me, like, where is the state at that moment? And what is it that makes it possible to have the space of public debate and public political culture being occupied by these kinds of, of characters? And that was the thing that drew me to that moment. And it became quickly populated with lots of other characters, particularly um Luis Emilio Recabarren, the founder of the Chilean Socialist Party and then founder of the Chilean Communist Party, and Victor Domingo Silva, who was at the time the, the one of the most famous poets in Chile, but also founder of a political party. Both of them had their own newspapers. Both of them thought that this Spanish um, feminist um speaker was just wonderful and kind of vied for uh, the vied for uh, her attention but also to be associated with her and at the same time they're mobilizing working class people in really exciting and different ways and so this is a moment which becomes famous for socialist, feminist, uh, working women centers that are named after the Spanish feminist speaker who comes to town. And there are places where um, Teresa Flores, who was the um, partner of Recabarren, the founder of the Socialist Party, where she was really cutting her teeth as an organizer and a public speaker. They used a lot of theater in terms of how they mobilized people and how they did the work of political organizing. And so it was exciting to be a part of that world and to be looking at diaries and newspaper accounts and inter- later published interviews and to get a sense of what were the dynamics between these very interesting um, people who were living on a frontier. They were living outside a lot of the restrictions that they would have faced in polite society in the national capital. And so it just, I have to say, I had a lot of fun. And I i was sort of kind of sucked into that world. Yeah, it was really fascinating to read about mm-hmm. their rivalries and alliances. Where does the state come in then? In that, because if, if this is a place where, at, at least in that moment, the state is m- mostly absent, you say. At what point does the state become the object of desire for uh, political parties and working class people and others in the mm-hmm. story? And at that moment, they were certainly making demands of the state, which at the time was controlled by the national oligarchy. So these are families whose wealth is derived from their relationship to foreign capital that's running the the mining. And so these few wealthy oligarchic families have a really a grip on national politics, but it's the mobilization of working class people in the North and from there all over Chile that's really rattling that control. And those elites are going to have to increasingly appeal to broader bases in their competition with each other and in the contestations 
um, that are coming from from subordinate sectors. And so at this juncture, partly because of the kind of journalism of writers like the poet Victor Domingo Silva and Luis Emilio Recabarren in his newspaper and the ways in which newspapers became a central note of political mobilization, even in a region where a lot of people were illiterate, but enough people could read that they would read to each other, that they would ideas circulated in a very material way, the material circulation of newspapers. And uh, certainly I, I use a lot of caricatures and political cartoons, and those were very effective forms of organizing. And so um, partly through this journalism, this radical journalism, there is that in those same months, a constitutional commission, a parliamentary commission that comes to the North to investigate questions of local officials, malfeasance, of uh, unsafe working conditions, and they produce a report that is also one of my sources. So they're, they're having to respond increasingly to these demands, but they aren't a presence that's answering people's needs at that time. And I think that does create a space for these idiosyncratic characters to be very prominent in in the political culture of the period. So the story of Chilean politics is that the political system is pushed wide open by this agitation and political parties are forming. And this is really kind of the genesis of those, of those, um, that party culture that will take hold of Chile very quickly. So that by the 1940s, Chile is the site of a popular unity government, I mean, a popular front government. So popular front governments were a model of coalition that the idea was that they should bring together center, uh, center left and left groups in coalitions that could make a challenge to fascist populism. And um, there were popular front governments in France, in Chile, in a number of places around the world. But arguably, Chile is the case in which the popular front as a model for political coalition was the most successful. So they gain political office, they gain the presidency and um, Congress, and they're reelected several times. So popular front governments continue in Chile up until the Cold War really kicks into gear in the late 40s. And in that period, there is um, there are major initiatives around urban housing. I think of um, my colleague Ed Murphy's research. And there are major initiatives around health and education, um, the idea of, of widespread access to education is really, um, really becomes, becomes the, the bar for, for Chile, what should be attained. And these, um, these governments were a really important uh, part of helping Chile recover from the devastation of the Great Depression where it was the country arguably most most destabilized and whose economy was most thrown into chaos by the Great Depression. And these governments really reimagine what, um, 
what that relationship between the state and civil society should be. I, I'm curious, and I don't know if this is quite the right place to ask, but you've, you've been touching on it a little bit. And I'm, I'm curious, given your work, uh, your, your work on ongoing work on Mexico, um, are, are there aspects of uh, Mexican history, in particular with regard to popular relations with the state or, or the pop, popular experience in, in state formation, are there aspects of the Mexican experience that help you to frame what you're looking at in Chile or that, that bring out, um, that, that signal to you certain aspects of the Chilean experience that, uh, that you might otherwise have, have not seen? Well, I think some things are becoming clearer through, um, as there's, as there is more scholarship on p- this period and building on, on M.C. Stepan's work on, the ways in which eugenics movements played out across the Amer- the Americas, it's becoming more clear that Chilean eugenicist thinkers were in a conversation with Mexican eugenicists. And so the idea, these both places are places where you had an ideology of a, well, in Mexico, they called it the cosmic race, right? But in, and in Chile, they called it, um, you know, kind of mestizaje or the, the Chilean race. And it was a notion, a kind of a mythologized notion that that the populations in both Chile and Mexico were a perfect um, a perfect meshing of the the noble Spanish warrior and the noble uh, indigenous uh, warrior. And I kind of find that really fascinating how these are kind of a, a kind of homoerotic kind of uh, misogynistic um, ideologies and that these, this kind of mixing of the finest qualities produces a, a new national subject for each place. And in both places, those ideologies take hold with great power and they are used to erase the ongoing diversity of of native peoples in both countries you know these are these are multi-ethnic societies and where that kind of mythologized vision of the past which shares a lot with the US West right that the noble the noble natives who their day is gone and now we are the heirs is a way of saying there aren't living people who have demands that need to be addressed and, and needs that need to be addressed. Both In both places, that worked really well. It was harder to pull off in Mexico because of a much larger, much larger and, and even more um, wide-ranging kinds of, of indigenous cultures and native peoples in, in Mexico. And so it 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 was a harder it was a harder um, proposition to pull off in Mexico than in Chile, where you had, which was a very very small very feudal society. So I think that's a kind of interesting um, connection that that is is becoming better understood as we do more research into the the kind of intellectual history of of that kind of eugenicist thinking. I find the two places fascinating to to work across and travel back and forth between because 
Chile had a, a particular kind of revolutionary project that was um, in large part quashed with the military dictatorship. Mexico had a, a very complex, widespread social revolution in 1910 and through the 19, early 1920s. And I think it made a big difference. I think the kind of feudal order between elites and the general population was fundamentally ruptured in Mexico in a way that it has yet to be ruptured in Chile. That the Chilean elite are very much, very much still view the world through a feudal lens. If that resonates with you at all. At all. Yeah, I, I guess one of the ways I would, I, that I, uh, as you're speaking, the way that I'm sort of envisioning it is that the, um, the uh, uh, I'm forgetting exactly which museum it is in Mexico City. The uh, it's not the it's not the modern art museum. I'm far, I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank on it. But you have um, within this uh, late 19th century French Italian uh, large building, you have uh, on the outside as part of the facade um, images of Quetzalcoatl. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine Colo Colo being included in anything in the Chilean. Uh, in the National Museum in Chile, on, in terms of the, the architecture itself, at least not, not certainly not in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in those spaces. Yeah. Those are spaces that remain, yeah, very much wedded to to a, a different vision, yeah. a much more contained vision of the of the nation and of its um, connections. I. I I think both both places are very much places where the left was deeply impacted by um, exiles, and that part has interested me very much. By exiles of coming fleeing uh, fascist Europe, and so I think those those histories are increasingly uh, more researched, and are the impact of those those exiles and those interactions and the movement of people in and out of both places as refugees and as exiles and both places were receiving and both places um, generated their own, right, their own kinds of political um, refugees. And I think those stories are becoming more, more appreciated. Mexico doesn't see itself as an a society where immigration was a big part of the story. And I think that is kind of opening up. Maybe one way to um, move from the first half of the book where it's more centered on the North and then the second half um, where the center of gravity moves to the capital Santiago is to think about the relationship um, of the state and repression and then mm-hmm. the left. Um, you talk in, especially chapter two, about um, these different moments uh, where uh, particular places in the North become uh, prison, uh, penal colonies, um, and sites of repression and torture and imprisonment of um, of leftists and their, in, and their whole families. Um, and then in chapters three and four, um, we see some of those same characters, including uh, Pinochet, um, carrying out, of course, much uh, more uh, brutal and extensive um, forms and um, acts of torture after the coup in 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about this concept of the space of death, 
Um, so I, I'm, this is a, you know, sort of a big question, but if you could talk about, uh, sexual practices during the populist era, um, and then how that changes under the dictatorship, but I'm interested in how you, um, you, you refuse these dichotomies and binaries and talk about continuums and in some ways to, um, restore agency, agency to people who are often seen as victims. Um, but they had, you know, some ability to shape the conditions of their, um, of their repression and, and subjectation, um, and of torture. So if you could talk about that relationship. Well, I spent a, a lot of time doing research on a place that was an, a site of multiple prison camps over the course of the 20th century. And that, um, was a really important part of my work on the questions of memory and state violence and how the same place could seem become naturalized as a appropriate side of state appropriate state repression over a long period of time but as i was doing that research i was think i was thinking about this particular structures of discipline and how fascist regimes themselves can become objects of desire, right? How do they mobilize people? How do people become come to sort of find them not only reasonable, but desirable? And I began to think about the prison camp as kind of a microcosm of this and how this might change over time and how even definitions of who is the enemy and then what are the appropriate forms of of state discipline against the enemy, how that might change over time. And gender and sexuality are, as Judith Butler teaches us, are really fundamental grammars of power and the way that power is expressed. And look, so contrasting two different moments in this site that was used as a prison camp, both early in the Cold War 1947, and at the height of the Cold War, arguably 1973, and comparing and contrasting the structures of the gendered and sexualized structures of of military discipline in that camp, for me, helped me think about larger changes in the political culture across those two moments. So in the earlier moment, there was a sense of class conflict. So entire communities were rounded up. So as Jody Pavlak talks about in her book about the coal miners in southern Chile, entire coal mining, striking coal mining communities are just put on boats and sent to the desert in the far north of Chile, a thousand miles away. And to me, that, that sending of whole families was a way in which or revealed the extent to which this was really understood as class conflict, whole swaths of society defined by their relation to the relations of production, their role in that system was the criteria for rounding up the whole community and putting them in this prison camp so that the problem were whole groups of people and that families were, um, that kind of family organization of state discipline was a was a reflection of that. But it fascinated me that this, the ways in which um, 
genders and organizing and structuring principle of military discipline are not often articulated expressly. So the kind of familial constitution of that repression really kind of came out in Pinochet's memoirs. Pinochet served as a guard in this prison camp in 1947-48. And in his memoirs that are published shortly after the 1973 coup, he talks a lot about that time period and about um, encounters between him and Allende, Salvador Allende, who would go on to become the president of Chile that he then deposed in the violent military coup in ways that were so disproportionate to the events of the time, talking about 1947-48. And it became clear to me that it was ludicrous that the dictator would argue that the 1973 coup was justified by the kinds of events that precipitated political repression of mostly communist party members, but really lots of different kinds of activists in 1947 and 48. And so he writes extensively of his experiences as a guard in the prison camp. And the prison camp, uh, Chile, like a lot of part of parts of the world at this time was experiencing food shortages from the dislocations of World War II. And the state really neither had the resources nor the kind of organizational capacity to adequately care for the people it threw into the camp. And so people were put in a system of organizing generally by kin group to feed themselves, to fish, to um, gather firewood to to take care of themselves. And this comes on the heels of the outgrowth of this radical working class feminist movement that gets its start in 1913, 1915, but builds momentum around the question of women's suffrage, because by 1946, 47, women still don't have the right to vote in Chile. And so the women who are brought into these camps ostensibly as family members of minors and party leaders and activists themselves had already had political experience and or were organized. And so they, they begin to organize the camp and they begin to protest the conditions and to challenge the authority of guards such as, such as um, Pinochet and he recounts these these contestations as the kind of in his view dangerous radicalism that then then will justify um 20 25 years later the military coup so to me that was just fascinating that he was making that link between those two moments of repression and that the one moment was seen as enough to justify the the really intensely brutal um, repression of 1973 when people people in that area were still rounded up, whole families were rounded up, but they were rounded up as individuals, as individual political activists and held under a very, very carceral, very individuated form of, of state repression um, that was really incomparable to the kind of violence that that had any historical precedent in Chile.
I'm I'm curious, given uh, a little bit where we are in terms of time, if you were to take two more chapters and stretch your book to the to the present, if you were to add two in two more chapters or one more chapter or however many you feel like, I'm asking you to write the book longer. Um, if you were to do that, what would you select as as sort of the, your your points of attention for the period from? Uh, from about 1990 through the present, or or at least maybe the last 20, 20, 25 years or so? Well, I I tried to do some of that in the epilogue. Mm-hmm. And um, I was tempted to, to write that as in chapter form, but I was interested in the epilogue in not just how things play out, but how um, subsequent events have only further further kind of s- cemented my sense that that desire is is the story of Chilean political culture and with many political cultures that that sense is certainly facilitated by the the very strong presidency of Michelle Bachelet, who who had served two non-consecutive terms as president of Chile after the first term goes and is founding director of the UN Office of Women. And after her second presidency uh, went to the position of, of Secretary General for Human Rights for the UN. So that kind of movement across scales and what that allowed her to do in terms of contesting a really entrenched, um, still elite dominated political culture of behind the scenes deal making and of secret societies like, like the Freemasons and Opus Dei and, and the ways in which that kind of working transnationally across those scales gave her a weight, a way to push and push and then to um, help facilitate spaces that were not entirely under her uh, and create spaces of contestation that certainly she was not running, right? And, and in many ways outstripped her, very quickly outstripped her. And so we've, we're in a period of, of a kind of effervescence of particularly feminist movements in Chile which are at the heart of the calls for a new constitution of the challenging of the politics, the intersection of reproduction and production that Chile's status as the model for a neoliberal restructuring of the political economy, the kind of terrible consequences of that and of a really fantastic articulation of the connections between pensioners, uh, impoverishment, water rights, the the ongoing repression of of indigenous peoples in relation to rent seeking of Chile's national resources and natural resources. That these movements, which are not um, which are not intrinsically connected but are articulating with each other are just really adept at being able to articulate and explain 
to people the ways in which these things are connected and the relationship between the institutional formalities of a constitution and what they're seeing in terms of their everyday lives and the ways in which that's about that's about uh, sexual power and about a kind of what they would call what they call patriarchado right a, a patriarchal regime is just fantastic it, it's in it's incredible times and terrible times that uh, people are living through right now but their ability to to tie all of those things together um, is electrifying it really is amazing that the degree to which this has been sustained for over a year now yes under the nearly impossible conditions of a, of the pandemic. That's right. But people, yeah, people uh, have persisted and also sustained just in terms of energy. It takes a lot of, a lot of energy and deep commitment to continue organizing and protesting and demanding in the face of quite terrible um, state violence. And in this and in, in a really shrinking kind of public sphere, in part shrinking because of the pandemic and in part shrinking because of the um, consolidation of media in the hands of of a few of a few companies, a few corporations. So their perseverance is just is just incredible. And the ways that they're willing to put these ideas together, it is what praxis is all about, that melding of theory and action. And they're able to articulate this critique in a way that is resonating in lots of parts of the world. So once again, Chile is on a world stage in terms of the ways in which struggles there are able to um, express and explain what's happening in lots of places in, in really culturally resonant ways through the the rapist in your path um public chant dance protest the that has it, it immediately was was reproduced around the world because it conveyed powerful ideas and an ability to understand the relationship between power and ideology and that that's just a really important part of of Chilean political culture over the long haul. One of the things Ed, that I, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. Oh, uh, well, I was, it, in, in addition to what you're saying about it, putting a lie to the mod, to the idea that Chile is the uh, paragon of, um, and some sort of except and some sort of uh, miracle of the neoliberal um, economy, the movement has put a lie to that. And it, and it seems like you're also suggesting in the book um, and here too, um, that it's putting a lie to the idea of reconciliation as a model for moving uh, past uh, experiences of state terror and dictatorship. Um, and I wonder what possibilities you see for um, what you call in the book an exit, um, a different model of um, of reckoning with the past and what your study and your work with um, different social groups and social movements um, can tell us about different uh, different kinds of models for Mm-hmm. Reckoning with the past and pursuing justice in the present and the future going forward. I love that question because even now, people 
um, I mean, many people don't realize that Chile was the place where this model of truth and reconciliation was developed and then applied to former Yugoslavia, applied to Russia, applied to, um, to South Africa, that Chile was the place where this model was congealed and then was very explicitly exported and and other places were told well now you need a re- reconciliation commission you need a uh and so i think I, I really always like an opportunity to point that out that it's that this is the site where that model came together and you make me think about um therapists relationship therapists who will say you both have to say it and do it right you have to be able to say i love you but and you have to be loving you have to treat you have to treat each other well in a loving way right and i think that's that's what um chilean activists are saying now you both have to have the constitution and you have to have a redistributive economy where wealth is not further consolidated so now some uh 1% of the population has 30% of the wealth in chile so you have to have both these kinds of structural transformations and you have to have a political culture in which people can express themselves and can uh, have rich associative lives and um, and have a have a say in their a say in their destiny and that you need both elements and that it's not enough to have a public culture of ostensibly truth and ostensibly a coming together if those kinds of structural conditions are not in place, a constitution that really allows for um, equitable and proportionate representation, for example. And I think that's what Chilean activists are, are articulating in a really powerful way. And the fact that they're, as they say, they want to have the first feminist constitution in world history, that they want, they see questions of gender justice, of justice around uh, minoritized sexualities, they see them as integral to this project, not as additive. That's really exciting. And it really kind of uh, allows me to wrap up a, a book project I worked on for many, many, many years those kinds of historical events gave me uh, what I needed to help me, or to help me kind of think about the history I'd been studying for so long. I, I'm I'm interested. I mean, because the, you do have because of the recent plebiscite, they've approved that um, there will be a new constitution and that it will be written by a, a constitutional convention composed of citizens rather than uh, dictated by the political parties via Congress. I'm uh, the the new convention will have gender parity, which if if I'm not mistaken is the first time that you have a constitutional convention that that has that as uh, as part of the the basic setup. Uh, I'm I'm curious, and this may be an odd question, but I'm curious if um, given the gender neutral language of a lot of the the protesters and and the signs within the protest and a lot of the discussion in, in Chile. Uh, now that has taken on a, a, a consciousness of uh, of gendered language, um, 
could Chile give us the first gender neutral um, in, in terms of the language of the Constitution itself? Do, is, is there any possibility you think that Chile might ha- come out with a gender neutral uh, Constitution in terms of the language used? Yeah, I'm not sure about neutral. I think uh, a a really thoughtfully gendered constitution, right? Where where the understanding that that gender is a grammar of power, and that questions of political economy are questions of of gender and sexuality. I think that will be that will be on the table in really exciting ways. And um, Chile is, uh, there was an infamously a moment in which, in which the Chilean Congress was going to make the use of the term gender illegal and was going to mandate that government documents could only use two terms, men and women. And, (laughs) and that you couldn't, you couldn't use the term gender. Because there's no in and so in which the ideologies around gender have been explicitly debated in Chile in a remarkable way that in in ways that they haven't in in very many other places in the world and an understanding that political language is intrinsically gendered and expresses that gender is an expression of the grammars of power. So I'm excited to see how this is grappled with in the Constitution. This and is how an incredibly fascinating process. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's really exciting and um, daunting because because of the degree of concentration of wealth and power in Chile, it's going to be very, very difficult. But we're at a very interesting historical moment. And I think also a, a moment of incredible um, creativity. Speaking of the future, do you have a sense of what you'll work on next? Well, I have um, I have other projects that have been percolating along over over the years. Most centrally, a long term project that I began even before the project in Chile with my colleague Deborah Cohen of the University of Missouri St. Louis on women's participation in the Mexican student movement of '68 and the long term ramifications of that. So we did a set of oral histories in 1989 and then returned um, every 10 years to interview, again, as many people as possible. So we have a really rich archive of these activists and um, the ways their, their lives have unfolded over those that 30 years in relation to the transformations in Mexican political culture. So that book is one that I have a long, I, I have a, <laughs> I have a date with destiny <laughs> in terms of finishing that book. And it, and it has also spun off into an, uh, another book project, which is well, which needs to be wrapped up on the idea of the global 68, where we are, uh, Deborah Cohen and I are, are centering the notion that for elites, there was a kind of global moral panic around uh, a sense of a, of a social order coming unglued in 68, and that we can see that best in the photojournalism that both they generated and that activists um, provoked through their activism. And we're focusing there on Mexico, Paris, and New York, 
as kind of global cities of that moment. And so that's a that is an exciting project that again really centers questions of of sex and sexuality as a window onto transformations of a of a particular political moment in which those topics were an explicit part of of the notion of what should constitute political struggle. So I'm excited about that. Uh, at the moment we're we're putting the final touches on a book length project on Zorro film adaptations across the 20th um, century as a as the uber vehicle for thinking about transformations in ideas of social justice and a kind of racialized erotics around uh, again political imaginaries. So you could kind of see there's a theme here. <laughs> what, what what interests me and in, uh, these these have all been really projects that we we've worked on over the over the years in between working on our own um, our own research programs. We've had this shared research um, program looking at these kinds of questions, and it's time to time to bring those those to fruition. Great. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you wanted to add? Now, I want to thank you both for taking the time to read the book and to be willing to engage with me so thoughtfully. I really appreciate that. It's been it's been a blast. Thank you. Well, thank this you is so a wonderful for... book. Wonderful book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Take care. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.